As the United States escalates the war in Ukraine by sending another $33 billion to Ukraine, today we talk about how and why the Ukraine war could become a nuclear confrontation. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Greg Mello. Greg is the co-founder and executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group. Greg Mello, welcome to The Socialist Program. Nice to be here. Thank you, Brian. Greg, we wanted to talk with you because you are an expert on nuclear arms, the nuclear arms race. The Los Alamos Study Group has been in the forefront for so long, warning about the dangers of nuclear war. We believe here on this show that the logic of the war in Ukraine, whereby the United States and NATO have said, we must win the war, not negotiate an end to the war, we must win the war. And Russia is determined not to lose the war. Mm -hmm. And both the United States and Russia being nuclear powers, the largest nuclear powers in the world, The logic is escalation, and when escalation takes place between nuclear powers, it puts the issue of nuclear confrontation on the agenda. We know this has already happened right after the war began, right after February 24th. The Russian government put its nuclear forces on the highest alert. So, Greg, as we get started in this discussion, and I want to break it down for people because I think especially younger folks who didn't grow up during the Cold War, might not have really thought through the implications or the dangers or the possibilities of nuclear war. I want to go through all of that, but let's start with you. Let's start with the Los Alamos Study Group and what your organization does and why you personally became involved in it. Hmm. Well, the Los Alamos Study Group began at the end, just before the end of the Cold War, Some of us in Santa Fe, right next to Los Alamos National Laboratory, realized that this was a time when citizen voices could bring about some changes in the nuclear weapons posture of the United States and our overall posture of militarism, perhaps. And we likened it to a large boulder that was possibly teetery and might go one way or another. So... Many of us in the peace movement and the nuclear disarmament movement pulled together and started the study group. And we were uh, found almost no uh, resistance to some of our initiatives in their early years. And unfortunately, the uh, military industrial complex dug in after a few more years, more or less coincident with the first expansions of NATO in the second Clinton administration. So all it's all very closely connected. So we've been, I am an engineer with a lot of scientific background, I've published in the field and have been a research 
fellow at Princeton in nuclear arms. And, but now I suppose I'm a kind of dissident from the uh, liberal consensus about uh, nuclear weapons, which has shifted gradually to the right in this country. Well, let's talk about how this shift has taken place. Again, when I was a kid, Greg, people were very alarmed about nuclear weapons, very alarmed. I mean, we had, as I, I can remember vividly as a child, the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. And if the Soviets had not backed down at that point, if Khrushchev had not capitulated when the U.S. set up a naval blockade to block Soviet ships from coming across the Atlantic towards Cuba, and if the Soviets had not agreed to remove missiles that they had placed in Cuba, basically as a tit-for-tat as the United States was placing missiles all around the Soviet Union, I think we would have had a thermonuclear war. And Kennedy said at that time, the Pentagon is mad, the generals are mad, meaning that they were ready to go. Mm-hmm. We had the the very famous movie, Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick, which again, it's an old movie, but I recommend everybody watch the movie. That was the idea the, of how I, I stopped being afraid and learned to love the bomb because nuclear war was coming. It was inevitable. And I want to go through the different stages of the sort of nuclear arms race with you, Greg, because we have entered a new stage, I believe. We had the first stage, which was Hiroshima, Nagasaki, when the U.S. was the sole power, the only country having nuclear weapons, and obviously was prepared and did use them when no one else could threaten the U.S. with nuclear retaliation. And the Soviets moved aggressively to get their own nuclear arsenal over time, eventually establishing a kind of parity, a certain symmetry. Anyway, let's go through the different stages or or that, but I want to get your, before we do it, I want to just get very briefly your thoughts. Could the Ukraine become a nuclear war and why? Oh, yes, it, it certainly could because the way things are set up now, both sides have an existential interest in the war. Russia can't afford to lose. NATO can't afford to lose the way they think about it at present. Russia began the war, or that intensified the eight-year running war that was already taking place in the Donbass region, because the security architecture of Europe as a whole was an existential threat to them, as they understood it, that things were developing to such an extent that their reaction time to an attack from the West was being measured in minutes. And it was, as Putin said, a dagger to our hearts. And the West, I think a lot of people misunderstand the war. We, I mean, the war was really the idea of the United States. We wanted to lure Russia into a destructive war. And we would like this war to continue until Russia is subjugated destroyed, broken apart, regime changed, whatever. Those two different sets of motivations don't make negotiations very easy or even possible until the United States drops its intent and the belief that it can change the regime in Russia, we're only going to see escalation. The more the United States succeeds, the more threat Russia will perceive, and it's a correct perception. Right. So when the Cold War ended, Greg, 
you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had nuclear parity. There was also what was called mutually assured destruction. Both sides had enough weapons, thousands, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons that should a nuclear exchange take place, you couldn't really win the war because you would be destroyed. Let's say you had a thousand more nuclear weapons. Let's say you have 10,000 and the other side only has 7,000. Well, it doesn't take that many weapons to just end civilization as we know it or end life as we know it mm -hmm. and the planet Earth as we know it. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, the logic of nuclear war led to the understanding that both sides could not win. Now, the reason I say this right now, because that has changed, Greg Mello. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. should show that it can win a nuclear war. Just everybody think about this. This was a big banner headline on the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. should show that it can win a nuclear war. Now, this was published on April 28th, two weeks ago. And the whole logic is, look, we have to show we can win. So that means, Greg, that the idea that neither side could win is actually eroding. And in fact, the U.S. or parts of the U.S., certainly media establishment, but I would guess also the military establishment and certainly some of the politicians, the gung-ho politicians in Congress from both parties, they think, well, look, if it comes to that, we can win. I mean, let's just talk about this as a new phenomena in American politics, in the American media. And I want to ask you as an expert on nuclear weapons, can somebody, can some side win a nuclear war? Absolutely not. That is the most crazy thing. I don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I've never seen that headline, although I've heard it mentioned. But it's shocking, even to me, that anyone could think such a crazy thing. Nuclear war is not a game. I think part of our problem is that we in the United States are, in effect, fighting an informational and propaganda and political war primarily. And these are the terms in which so many of our leaders and pundits actually think in. They don't have their feet on the ground in any serious way. They move from meeting to meeting, tweet to tweet, and they don't understand what this means. Nuclear war, as Ted Postel said the other day, means a 10,000 degree wall of fire moving through your city. It means the sun being brought down to the surface of the earth. It means a nuclear winter after it's all over where the temperature doesn't rise high enough to grow any food. It means pretty much everybody dies. It is so far beyond the comprehension of today's leaders that it's a kind of a break with reality, almost a kind of psychosis that has enveloped people who could write something like that. Yeah, and the fact that the Wall Street Journal let it be published, it shows it's not marginal. Right. It shows that right. the Wall Street Journal thought this was an article that needed to be published. Again, it's across the entire editorial page in the Wall Street Journal, April 28th. People can look at it for themselves. And the, the whole idea, the thesis is that unless the U.S. can show that it will win a nuclear war, it might be afraid of a nuclear war. And if the U.S. is perceived as being afraid of a nuclear war, that will allow Russia to be more aggressive. 
And so the only way to prevent Russia from being more aggressive is to show we're not afraid. And the reason we're not afraid is we can win. We can win a nuclear war. Now, again, let's just trace how this evolved. Because I believe, Greg, that the U.S. fundamental military doctrine is, in fact, now repremised on the idea that the U.S. can defeat Russia and China, that the U.S. can mm -hmm. create confrontational situations mm -hmm. like the war in Ukraine mm -hmm. or something with Taiwan, mm -hmm. and that the U.S. will have nuclear primacy such that the Russians will have to back down. Now, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a hardliner national security advisor during the Carter administration between 1977 and 1981, when Reagan takes over, he wrote a book called The Great Game. It's about Europe. And he's really a proponent after the fall of the Soviet Union for NATO to move east. And he actually says the goal on this chessboard is to checkmate Russia. And to checkmate Russia means actually to defeat Russia in this geostrategic chess game. And once that happens, Russia will never emerge once again as a national power, that in fact, Russia will start to splinter, unravel, become dismembered. It's a very big country, lots of ethnicities. Obviously, the Soviet Union was dismembered. So Brzezinski is an advocate of the Americans going for it, moving NATO to the east. And he says in the book, in The Great Game, that the checkmate will be when Ukraine is integrated into NATO. Mm -hmm. Because at that moment, Russia will have, along its 1,200-mile-long border with Ukraine, advanced conventional and nuclear missiles placed that reach their targets in five or six minutes, and Russia will never be able to defend against them, meaning Russia will become so weak, it will no longer be, quote, a national power, and then it will splinter and break apart. Now, when you think about this, you think about the logic is, was Russia a threat to the United States after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was Russia not weakened? Was it not a humbled country? Was it not basically on its knees? And at that moment, instead of the U.S. thinking like, okay, the threat is gone, the Soviet threat so-called is gone, instead of that, the U.S. says, or parts of the U.S., and I think they're now the drivers, that ideology of nuclear primacy, the drivers of a new policy to not only sort of secure the peace, it actually had nothing to do with that, it's really to crush Russia. And it seems to me that the Russian government has come to the conclusion that this position, which at first might have seemed to be an extreme position, is in fact a consensus position within the American establishment. I agree with every bit of that analysis. You can extend it back in time Mackinder, Hitler's geostrategist, Haushofer, Brzezinski, Wolfowitz. It's embodied in the idea that we must not allow any peer competitor to arise uh, is been embodied in U.S. official strategies for a number of years now. And Russia as a sovereign state with legitimate interests is almost automatically a peer competitor because of its size and where it sits. So in addition to all that, we would like to have the resources that Russia has. In addition to all that, we would like to keep Europe dependent on us and not let 
business ties develop any further. In fact, to weaken them, we'd like to have better access to the Middle East from the north to box in Iran and the resources of the Middle East, which will be even more important in the decades ahead as fossil fuels continue to decline. There's a number of reasons why these are longstanding U.S. policies that are driving us toward escalation with no endpoint other than disaster at this point. Yeah. When we think back to the history, and again, unfortunately, not enough people, especially in this country, know even contemporary history. When the U.S. had nuclear primacy, when it had a monopoly on nuclear weapons, it used them. And I want to talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki for a minute. You know, one bomb, one bomb dropped in early August 1945 on Hiroshima, a civilian city, city without any military significance, a city that had not been bombed earlier. Uh, maybe the U.S. was trying to keep it sort of as a laboratory experiment. You can talk about that if that's true. And then a few days later, Nagasaki, one bomb in those two cities killed, I don't know, 100,000 people. I mean, in a flash. Talk about a weapon of mass destruction, an indiscriminate weapon. But the U.S. was very excited about the ability to have that weapon. It wasn't, you know, later or even then it was justified as, well, this saved American lives because then we didn't have to invade Japan. And now Japan was compelled to surrender. I mean, there's a lot of that that's just BS, uh, frankly. Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's help the audience understand what Hiroshima was, what it meant, what it meant for American foreign policy, and the military reality of whether or not the use of that bomb was actually necessary in order to beat Japan, and what its role was in the beginning of what became the Cold War. Well, uh, the U.S. military, the Air Force, did not think that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki made any difference to the end of the war. Military leaders in the United States at the time argued against it. Japan was already defeated. They were starving. They were surrounded. There was a complete naval blockade. They were suing for peace. Sure, there were people who wanted to you know, fight to the last man, but they were rapidly headed toward a minority. And we intercepted their cables. They, they wanted Moscow to be their advocates to sue for peace. They had no idea that the Russians were moving a gigantic army to Manchuria at the time. And so, yes, it wasn't, that wasn't necessary at all to end the war. It made no, no difference, but it did make a big difference in U.S. foreign policy then and immediately after. There were inexperienced people. We, Jimmy Burns became Secretary of State. Truman was both Truman as president. They were both completely inexperienced. Of course, everyone was inexperienced with respect to atomic weaponry, but those two were inexperienced in foreign policy, period. There were warnings that, gosh, Russia has some very smart people and a lot of industrial capacity, and this is a terrible mistake to threaten them with nuclear weapons, as we did implicitly and ex explicitly in the years immediately following the war. Um, so there were, you know, war plans, Operation Broiler, 
There were uh, the first war plan for a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union was produced about a, a month after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, and the U.S. and the Soviets had had been allies. Yes. So here, yes. the Soviet Union and the United States as an ally, and they're preparing a nuclear attack against the Soviet Union. Their ally. Yes. There was quite a lot of opinion in the Air Force that we should destroy the Soviet Union completely while we had the chance. So looking back at those weapons, which you have accurately described, the United States has a bomb in its arsenal today that's almost 100 times as powerful as those weapons. And it is being debated as to whether we should keep that weapon. And the reason is it, uh, such a weapon 100 times the size of Hiroshima, almost, let's say 80 times, will dig a very large hole. And we want to get those Russian leaders and make them so frightened of being sent up as dust that they would do our bidding. So the Congress is debating that weapon right now, possibly this afternoon in the Senate, uh, Senate Armed Services Committee. Wow. And Obama promised that weapon would be retired about now, but it isn't. And, you know, most U.S. nuclear weapons, the yields are, oh gosh, 20 times uh, Hiroshima, let's say, ballpark. And we have at the ready, right, uh, we have about 2,000, 2,500 uh, within a week, let's say, we could generate 2,500 nuclear weapons. There is a feeling in the Pentagon, and this based on conversations that I've had, that because our warheads are extremely accurate and Russia's are not quite as accurate, that we could take out more of their weapons in a first strike and they would then squander most of their weapons attacking our missile silos in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Nebraska, and North Dakota, and that the fallout would be tolerable, and therefore we'd win the nuclear war. And if you give something like a nuclear bomb to the military, the military is, uh, they can't think in any terms other than winning. So it's a misnomer, a mistake to think of a nuclear weapon as a weapon, because as soon as you do, then it falls into this victory machine, this victory frame. That's why you have weapons, so you can win. So there's, you know, the people in the Pentagon generate these scenarios that maximize U.S. positive outcomes from a nuclear war. That's what they do. That's what we're pay paying people to do. And it's absolutely crazy. Always was and always will be. We've learned recently from Vladimir Putin that Russia asked to join NATO as NATO was starting to expand in the 1990s. And the U.S. said, no, no, they're not going to do that. Now, obviously, Yeltsin had very good relations with the United States, and Yeltsin appointed Putin to be the new leadership. I mean, it was Yeltsin was responsible for his ascension. But in 2002, the U.S. canceled the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And a few years later, Putin said, that's a game changer. Now, I want to talk with you about why that's important, but also just for our audience, several things happened in sequence here, also in a run-up to the war in Ukraine. And I want to list them real quick. 2002, 
Putin says the cancellation of the ABM anti-ballistic missile treaty, that's a game changer. Then you have in 2014, the coup d'etat in Maidan in Kiev, in the capital city of Ukraine, the U.S. supports it, you know, literally American officials and politicians are in the square with the protesters on the eve of the overthrow of a democratically elected government. Yes, a corrupt government, but democratically elected government, and most importantly, a neutral government. Yanukovych had professed to keep Ukraine out of NATO. So that's 2014. So 2002, ABM treaty canceled. 2014, Maidan, the Maidan coup overthrows the Ukrainian government. Now it's clear that the U.S. is going to move Ukraine into an American sphere of influence and maybe formally into NATO. Then you have in 2018, when Trump and Trump is starting his second year, the Pentagon quadrennial report comes out announcing that the U.S. has a new military doctrine. The war on terror is no more. It's no longer Al-Qaeda. It's major power conflict. That's 2018. Obviously, the major powers are Russia and China. The third thing that happens is that in 2019, the U.S. unilaterally leaves, withdraws from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Mm -hmm. And that's the treaty that banned or prohibited these missiles that had a flight time of five or six minutes to their targets that had become, you know, what launched the anti-nuclear movement in the 1980s when the U.S. placed them in Europe. And then the U.S. cancels the Open Skies Treaty or its participation in it. So let's real quick talk about why and how this is existentially significant to Russia and its ultimate calculations regarding Ukraine. What is the ABM? Why is it important? Why did the U.S. cancel it? What was the INF? Why did the U.S. cancel it? Open Skies Treaty, what was it? Why did the U.S. cancel it? Okay, I want to add one more to your list, and that was a NATO meeting in Bucharest where NATO said as a policy that we will add Ukraine and Georgia to the NATO alliance. That was in 2008. John Mearsheimer emphasizes that in his talks about this. And Putin, he said, this is, as in your words, a game changer. We cannot allow this to happen. This will never happen. And short time after that, a war was fomented in Ossetia, South Ossetia, and Russia came in in three days, took care of that. That's in Georgia. Yes. In Georgia. Yes. A few months later. Yes. A few months after that summit. Yes. And that policy of Ukraine joining NATO was articulated at the highest NATO level as a consensus in 2008. But now back to your list, the ABM Treaty was... The United States and Russia realized that anti-ballistic missile systems were really part of the overall nuclear war structure. So one side could, if one side had an effective ABM system, it could launch an attack and take out most of the opposing forces. On the other side, the remnant could be taken out by the anti-ballistic missile system. So it was basically an offensive system. And both sides realized that this was going to increase the risk of nuclear war. If we just allowed these ABM systems to proliferate, 
it will be worse. So, and uh, who was that, Nixon? 72, Nixon. Okay. Right. So repudiating that was a declaration of an arms race by the United States. We have been, in this country, investing in anti-ballistic missile systems for a long time. Now, they're not very effective. The tests have been rigged. The incoming warhead speeds are very high. Lots of decoys can be cheaply created so that the problem of interception is quite difficult. But it's easier to shoot down an ICBM when it's going very slow and there aren't any decoys in the first part of its trajectory. And the United States is building such systems in Romania and has built in Romania and Poland at this point. And that was foreseen back in uh, 2002, 2003, when that treaty was abrogated by the United, by the Bush administration. So what that means is that Russian ICBMs, when they're going slowly, still taking off, could be shot down. It had nothing to do with Iran. It doesn't have that sort of missiles. And those locations aren't even correct for protecting Europe from Iranian missiles. What a ridiculous idea. So Russia saw this as an offensive capability, and which it is. And furthermore, those launching systems can be switched out to offensive strike systems. They're the same launch tubes that are used for US cruise missiles. And the missiles are delivered in a box, could be changed out in hours in the middle of the night. No one, not even the host countries, would know the difference. So Russia said, this is completely unacceptable to us because you could put missiles there that would reach us very, very quickly. And that continues to be their position. The INF Treaty was also, it was the first treaty signed which really broke the momentum of the Cold War and decreased tensions in Europe. And you're absolutely correct that there was a gigantic anti-nuclear movement in Europe for the lack of um, warning time. People realized that Pershing missiles launched from Germany would be in Moscow in seven minutes, and therefore that they themselves were automatically then a high priority target, maybe a preemptive target. So INF Treaty, one of the foundation stones of peace between the United States and Russia. Open Skies Treaty, another one, just in rather plain vanilla confidence building measure that it didn't cost us anything, but it got caught up in the Russophobic political posturing in, in Washington that, oh my God, we can't have Russians flying over our country taking pictures. Oh, come on. As one uh, older uh, person with a lot more Russian experience than me uh, said, uh, don't worry, Greg, the Russians know everything. The Russians have been at, I mean, the satellites now, right? And so it's, you know, it's actually to our advantage. The people who wrote that treaty understood that it was to our mutual advantage to have transparency. It lowers tensions. Um, now it's gone. So both sides could fly over each other's territory, do a reconnaissance, and prove that the that both sides were adhering to the earlier treaties. So the architecture, the arms control architecture of the 1960s and 70s and 80s was in place. So the U.S. cancels the ABM, meaning now we're going to create missile defense shields 
such that if the U.S. carries out a first strike attack against the Russian military nuclear arsenal, meaning destroying those missiles in their silos or destroying those submarines or destroying those planes that carried missiles, you launch a big first strike attack, you take out, say, 95% of the adversary's capability. That still leaves a number of nuclear missiles coming, but a missile defense shield picks up the remnant. It can't pick up 100%, but maybe it can pick up 3% or 4% or 5%, that which would actually perhaps survive a first strike attack. So the only purpose of a missile defense shield is not for defense, it's for carrying out first strike attacks. And I thought it was very noteworthy in the Democratic Party primaries in the 2020 election run-up, Elizabeth Warren was being attacked, and I'm no fan of Elizabeth Warren, but she was being attacked because she dared to say in the primary debate that the U.S. should renounce the first use of nuclear weapons. And Jake Tapper, who sounded like a Dr. Strangelove type madman, said, how can you possibly do this as a presidential candidate? Aren't we giving up this amazing bargaining chip? Meaning, like, if you renounce first use of nuclear weapons, that takes away from the U.S. diplomatic capability, this card that can be played, which, and the card is, we can destroy you. We can destroy you, meaning we can use nuclear weapons to win. And that's the logic of this entire discourse. And again, Elizabeth Warren was put on the defensive and the media, the media sounded more right wing than the generals. And that's pretty hard. Anyway, go ahead. Well, that I think is what we now see. And you've explained that very well. I want to come back to this theme that our pundit class has lost touch with reality, that there is a very deep problem here. So someone like Jake Tapper moves in a world where it comes from the enormous inequality in our society. People are lifted at an early age, put on a track uh, to have these powerful positions in government. They don't know how the poor people live. They don't know, as we've often discussed here at the study group, they don't have to tell the difference between 12 inches and 13 inches because they have people they hire to build things for them. They are out of touch. They don't know science. They don't know military science. They don't know thermodynamics. They don't know how to manage a highly technological society with a large military because they live in a world of PR and politics and ratings, and that's their world. We've never had this situation before. A generation of people in the past, even more conservative people, would understand, I mean, Nixon for crying out loud, they understood the value of lowering tension uh, through greater transparency, all of the web of interactions that we had during the Cold War to keep a lid on tensions and make sure that there were not too many misunderstandings, especially after the 1983 Abel Archer exercise that scared the pants off Russia. All of that has been taken away. So we have almost no diplomatic or military relations with Russia at this point. 
And that too is contributing to this danger, which apparently only those of us on the fringe uh, see. You know, it's interesting. I, we're looking at this footage of Nixon and Brezhnev walking together. They're both smiling. This is one of the many summits. Now, now the U.S. and the Soviets were arch enemies, right? That was the whole idea of the Cold War. But both sides were, at a certain point, creating this architecture for, I would say, an equilibrium such that it wouldn't lead to global war. You know, World War One and World War Two where there was unmanaged rivalries between the major powers and they lead ultimately to World War I, 20 million people die, World War II, maybe 90 million people die. So in the middle of the Cold War, there's this equilibrium that's created based on mutually assured destruction. So you have Nixon who as a teenager, I mean, I couldn't think of anyone more right wing than Nixon. And he's with Brezhnev, the communist party leader of the Soviet Union, smiling. They're having summits. They come to arms control agreements. And I'm, I'm saying all of this because, because of the point that you're making, the general political discourse in America has shifted so far. I went when Obama made his acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2008, and I, I compared his speech to Richard Nixon's acceptance speech at the Republican Convention in 1968. So that was, you know, 50 years later. And Obama sounds like he's to the right of Nixon. Now, it's not because Obama is really to the right of Nixon. It's because the political discourse has shifted so dramatically in America that Richard Nixon, the right winger, the anti-communist, seems like a liberal by 2008 standards. And between 2008 and 2022, another 14 years, we're at a situation where media pundits like Jake Tapper or these these rich kids, these privileged rich kids who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth. And I'm talking about Anthony Blinken and Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan, mm -hmm. Victoria Newland. Mm -hmm. You know, they are sort of routinely talking about, yeah, if war comes, we can handle it. We're ready for anything. You know, sanguine about war, not worried about war, talking about we must win the war. And doing all of these measures against Russia such that Russia feels so existentially threatened that it climbs the escalation ladder back. And how do these people step off the escalation ladder? How does that stop? That's why the logic here, the Americans are very content. They've united Europe under their domination. They're pumping $33 billion more weapons into Ukraine. They're saying, as Nancy Pelosi did, you, you keep fighting, you're going to win, stick with it. There's no political liability for American politicians because right. all the bleeding's happening in Ukraine, not right. Americans, right. not like the Vietnam War. Right. So you have a dynamic where the U.S. is absolutely determined to defeat Russia, and Russia is absolutely determined not to be defeated. Mm -hmm. That's the logic. Yes, and it's very frightening. And what I think that most people in the West, most of these leaders, they might not consciously think that they're talking about nuclear primacy, but nuclear weapons now fit in a broader kind of total war involving information, economic sanctions, conventional proxy war, nuclear, mutual nuclear threat. They definitely want to win this broader war. 
I was thinking the situation might be analogized to a big bully. We're the bully. U.S. military spending is about 16 times Russia's. In fact, in pure dollar terms, U.S. spending on nuclear weapons, including the Environmental Cleanup Program, is greater than Russia's spending in dollars on its entire military. Let me repeat that. The U.S. is spending now on its nuclear weapons, including the environmental cleanup from the Cold War, which is about a quarter of the whole, but it's politically necessary to maintain political support in Congress for the nuclear arms race that we are engaged in. We spend as much on nuclear weapons per year, we're planning over the 30-year period of modernization that we're talking about, as Russia spent last year on its entire military. So it's about 75 million billion, excuse me, in the United States with the cleanup, and it's over 30 years the average because we're building new subs, new missiles, new bombers, new fighter bomber, new warheads, new communication and control. It's a $1.5 trillion expenditure spread over 30 years. I can tell you that at least three of the nuclear weapons design and production facilities are now working 24-7 in the United States. Uh, hiring is going on at a very rapid pace. People are working graveyard shifts to make as many nuclear weapons as possible right now. And this is not something that's in the past. This is something which is happening right now. There are five uh, nuclear weapons projects in the United States which are happening simultaneously. This has never happened since the Cold War. The uh, U.S. military has begun to feel inferior. Now, when we said we're going to withdraw from the ABM treaty so we can proceed with ballistic missile defense, Russia said, this is a very expensive endeavor and we're not sure it will succeed. We do not want to engage in a ballistic missile defense race with you. If you do this, we are going to have to enhance our offensive missile capabilities and develop nuclear weapons which you can't shoot down. Uh, what was it, three years ago, Putin uh, had a press conference and he said, we have now done this. Here are our new missiles and you can't shoot them down. Here is our new uh, nuclear cross-oceanic torpedo. You cannot find it or destroy it. We are now immune from your, not only your present ballistic missile defense system, but any future one you might want to somehow be able to develop. We have created a nuclear shield for ourselves. But bear in mind that their military expenditures are a tiny fraction of NATO's. So we have a situation where we, the bully, are beating up at this point. We're beating up on a much weaker adversary, a schoolyard weakling, but he's got a handgun in his back pocket. I think that's really important that, and again, the absurdity, the bizarre idea that the U.S. can win a nuclear war as if Russia and China or even North Korea don't have some capacity. And of course, there will not be symmetry. The U.S. will spend $1.5 modernizing its nuclear weapons. 
North Korea's entire military budget is not bigger than the New York City Police Department budget, uh, about $4 billion. So obviously, North Korea is going to innovate. Russia doesn't want to go weapon system for weapon system with the U.S., as unfortunately and tragically, I think the Soviet Union military decided to do because they can't afford it. So they're developing asymmetrical, not equivalent, but asymmetrical weapons to not be crushed by America. So these hypersonic missiles that, as you mentioned, Putin unveiled at that end of the year press conference, I think, and they had an animation showing how the missile could go so fast and avoid all the missile defenses. And then in Ukraine, I noticed in the beginning of the war, Russia used one of those weapons, Mm -hmm. one of those hypersonic missiles Mm -hmm. to destroy a U.S. supplied arms depot in the western part Mm -hmm. of Ukraine, meaning it traveled quite a long distance. Obviously, the Russians are sending a message and whatever the U.S. has in terms of scale, the Russians will innovate. They'll find some asymmetrical way to fight back. And that, too, means this idea of primacy is actually a fiction. Mm-hmm. Primacy is a recipe for nuclear disaster, human catastrophe, nuclear winter, the end of life as we know it. It's a recipe for that, but it really isn't a recipe for victory. Mm-mm. And along the way, what happens to all our hopes for dealing with climate? Well, what happens to the sustainable de- development goals in the United Nations? What happens to everything else that we're trying to do to make our societies livable? I mean, look at our cities today with their homeless camps that we can't seem to manage to deal with. U.S. military spending, I just calculated this yesterday, is about uh, $7,800 per U.S. household per year. It's a crushing burden. Crushing. Wow. Absolutely crushing. How much has the U.S. spent on nuclear weapons? I mean, let's remember, it's used them twice in August 1945. So we're now 55, 77 years later. Mm-hmm. So 77 years, the U.S. has had a nuclear arsenal. Thankfully, it hasn't used them again, but it spent a lot of money building these things. Right. So again, building a weapon that hasn't been used, how, how much, what's the tab for nuclear weapons? I have not recently calculated this, but I think it is in the range of 10, 11 trillion. So somewhere in there. This industry was at one time comparable to the automobile industry. It was a huge industry. And now we are employing on the order of 55,000 people around the country working on nuclear warheads alone, not counting the new ballistic missile submarines, bombers, missiles, the silos, communication control, etc. Yeah. I read the defense industry, so-called defense industry, uh, lobbying and industry organizational newsletters every day. Mm-hmm. They're so happy right now, Greg. Mm-hmm. They are really, it seems like they're on ecstasy. I mean, they are really happy. They couldn't be happier. The idea that it's all about Ukraine and Ukrainians and stopping the suffering. When you read these newsletters, you get the sense that these people, they feel like they've just walked into piles of money. Mm-hmm. Well, they have. It's true. I mean, at Los Alamos National Lab, they used to frequently joke about their funding strategy was simply to wait until the truck drove up the hill and dropped the pallets of money. 
it's just at this one facility, it's $19 million a day. Interesting. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was president between 1953 and the beginning of 1961, he made that famous speech at the very end of his presidency, warning the country of the dangers to democracy of a military industrial complex. Of course, he helped create the military industrial complex, perhaps more than any other single individual. His first draft of the speech, which was then amended by speechwriters, and so it called military industrial complex. In the first draft, it was called the military industrial congressional mm -hmm. complex. Mm -hmm. And again, when you look at military technologies like the F-35, the Pentagon has actually subcontracted the continuation of production on different parts of that fighter plane, which is notoriously for being bad as a, mm -hmm. as a weapon. Mm -hmm. But in 46 of the 50 states, I mean, meaning that the Congress people and the senators from these states, they'll think, well, if we cut funding for this weapon, that will mean we'll lose jobs. I mean, it seems like the Pentagon is really running the show. They're completely manipulating Congress, not that it's very difficult. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that because you study this mm -hmm. every day. Well, that's actually right. There is a somewhat conservative person relative to you and I who teaches at the Tufts School. He used to be counsel for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Michael Glennon has a little book called Double Government. In the book, he argues that the United States has evolved a kind of double government, which is a phrase that comes from the 19th century in England, that we have a, an outer government and then we have an inner efficient government, which is necessary to manage the complexity and continuity of our far-flung empire, just as it was necessary for the UK to have such a efficient government in the 19th century to manage its empire. What he calls the Trumanite institutions of the National Security Council, Pentagon, the intelligence community, that they have now grown so cancerously in comparison to the, what he calls the Madisonian or constitutional institutions of the United States, the Congress, the presidency, the courts, that the latter are completely unable to control them anymore. Well, I have been in several hundred congressional briefings over the last 12 years. And what I have learned there is that Michael Glennon is correct, that the military industrial complex allied with Congress, with the media, with the think tanks, with the academy, academia, they are calling the shots. There's very little ability or interest on the part of Congress to create accountability in this system. And it is only going to be, as this more conservative person, Michael Clinton says, our conclusion is the same as his, only with an aroused, really aroused citizenry. That's the phrase he uses, uh, but uh, I mean more than aroused. Of course, the policies that we've talked about are going to create pain in the United States. They are creating pain. We are squandering our opportunities faster than we can create them. How we understand, how the public understands, and especially how the leaders of civil society understand the pain 
that we are experiencing and are about to experience is going to determine where this goes, assuming we can avoid a nuclear war. Are we going to think that an example is, are the inflation at the gas pump, is that Putin's fault? Or is that the result of some deeper problems in our society that we have to deal with? Are we going to do something about climate? Is that going to be Putin's fault too? We have to get busy and help people understand, as you do every day, what's behind the things that are happening and are about to happen to us, which are not going to be pretty. So while we may be concentrating on defeating Russia, I think the United States as a dominant, wealthy country with intact democratic institutions is already defeated. Our decline is now unraveling. And how we understand that decline and whether it leads to nuclear war or feeds on itself to create even steeper decline is the question of the hour. As we start to wrap up, I wanted to do this show because I feel the public in general is unprepared for the seriousness and the, the consequences of U.S. policy, which I believe will lead to escalation. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this article on the Wall Street Journal, we have to show that we can win a nuclear war, is a harbinger of what's coming. I know that sounds perhaps a little dark or gloomy, but I actually think that's where, where it's going. And I believe as an organizer, as an activist, as a socialist, as somebody who puts social justice and peace as a primary goal, and a realizable goal that we have to fight with a realistic understanding that we shouldn't be Pollyannish, we shouldn't have rose-colored glasses on, we should know what we're dealing with. And that's why, even though it's a grim story, I think it's a story that needs to be told. But we also need to show that we can actually do something. And when you think about those treaties that were achieved, the ABM, the INF, the creation of equilibrium. There was two elements of that. One was America's adversaries, in that case, the Soviet Union, achieved their own nuclear capability. But on the other side, there was a large, massive global movement against nuclear weapons that demanded and insisted that the US and the other nuclear powers go in the opposite direction. And this movement became a movement of millions in the 1980s. Actually, it helped very much lead to the signing of the INF Treaty that's now been canceled, but that was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in 1986. Well, four years before that, in Central Park, a million people marched. And that was in tandem with Europeans who were marching in the tens of millions, demanding an end to these, this nuclear war. So it's a grim story, but it's not, from my point of view, a battle that's unfinished. In other words, we can fight for peace mm -hmm. and we can win the peace, but we have to recognize that this really will be a struggle. And we have to find a way to sort of expose the mm -hmm. false use of patriotism and nationalism as a way to throw sand in people's eyes or the demonization of America's targets so that you learn to just hate and fear whoever it is, whether it's mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Vladimir Putin. All of these things are propaganda devices to make the American people not see the truth and also to prevent them from becoming political actors such that they actually become the dominant factor in politics. And that can still happen. 
And so in my last question to you, and it's obviously what you've devoted your life to with the other scientists and engineers in the Los Alamos study group and others who are outside the discipline, but with you, what is it that we can and should be doing? Of course, I think the first thing is telling the truth. But again, let's just talk about how people can actually become involved in social and peace movements that make a difference. Yes. People are becoming from all kinds of different places. We're coming out of a pandemic where I think people's social connections and perhaps their social skills have been in decline a little bit. I'm noticing locally our political you know, city councils don't bother to get public input the way they used to. We have to talk, in other words, and we have to talk in the public sphere as we're doing here and in every possible opportunity. One of the barriers is that we're seeing in some of our conversations is that people are waiting for the perfect moment or the perfect trope or rhetorical device or something. Uh, well, there isn't any. It's extremely imperfect right now. The beginning of the anti-war movement back in the early Vietnam days was extremely imperfect. Everyone was trying to figure out what the heck was going on and what the implications were, and they tried everything. We need to come together in what organizations we have and use the institutions and networks that we have. We get a certain amount of pushback right now from mainstream liberals who are probably the, uh, our biggest challenge right now in terms of understanding what's going on. And whereas oddly, rather oddly, there are many conservatives who understand perfectly well what's going on. And I haven't quite figured that out, but Ukraine is running out of military age men, trained military age men. And so there's a very big danger that NATO is going to be directly involved. More NATO member countries are going to be sending their volunteers, mercenaries, whatever, over there. And there's an army, their army's massing right now. So in addition to the gigantic amount of money that Biden is asking for, there's also materiel. We have to reach out to our European friends, all of us, and ask them what the hell they're, they're thinking and try to get them to come out of their bubble of unreality. Well, we're about to put up a billboard in a couple of days. A billboard message has to be very brief, and it's not a downtown billboard by any means. It's on an interstate highway. It says, educate yourself, oppose the war. And there are many ways to do that, but we just have to get off our asses. We're going to leave it right there. That was Greg Mello. Greg is the co-founder and executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group. Greg Mello, thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.